We are starting uh, a new series, as you can see on the screen uh, behind me. Uh, so we're going to get started today on that. I think Pastor Ron has us going somewhere in, sometime into January or February in this series, so buckle down. Um, the nice thing about going through books of the Bible is that you're pretty much assured of knowing what's happening next, so you can go and read ahead, study up. And uh, be prepared for the next sermon. So this morning what we're going to do is just introduce this new series on the books of First and Second Timothy. And kind of get the ball rolling. And next week we'll dive right in um, to uh, the first chunk of First Timothy. So before we get started this morning, why don't we pray and ask the Lord's blessing upon my preaching and your hearing. Father, thank you for this morning and this um, opportunity uh, that we have to come into an air-conditioned big room with a microphone and speakers and comfortable chairs. We think of our brothers and sisters around the world who hid in a cave or a forest or a house or a basement today in order to worship together. Uh, Lord, may we have the kind of faith um, that would sustain us should that be our position in life. Should you call some of us to go to places like that and should that ever happen here in America. Lord, may we um, so desire to be together and so desire to be gathered around your word that we would prioritize um, the study of your word on Sunday mornings, that we would prioritize the study of your word during the week, um, that video games and TV shows and extra sleep um, would not um, get in the way of our spending time with you. Lord, as we, as we delve into First and Second Timothy over the next several months, Lord, I pray that you would use this, um, these books by the Apostle Paul to speak to our, our hearts, um, that it would inform um, how we go about our business here at church as a church family. Lord, I pray that you would um, help us to, to understand what your will is for us, that we would know um, what your purpose is and that we would have the focus to follow it. This morning, God... Uh, Speak through me and your word, and may um, it be a blessing to your people, and may you continue to form us into the image of your Son. We long for the day when we get our new bodies, and we see you face to face, and worship you forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And until that time, Father, give us endurance and perseverance as we seek to follow you and to glorify you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. So it would help you to turn to the book of First Timothy. Um, how many of you, just by show of hands, have a study Bible right now with you in the room? Raise them high. Fantastic. All right. So don't look too close at your study notes because then you don't have to listen to me. Just kidding. But we are going to do basically um, a lot of what your study Bibles um, supply you with, which is introductions to, um, to the book. I would encourage you to utilize a study Bible if you don't have one, to buy one. Uh, in high school, Sunday school today, we're going to be um, talking about how to best use our study Bibles. And so I'm a huge fan of study Bibles. Make good use of them. You can also pull out your notes um, as we uh, kind of go through what we have here. First Timothy and Second Timothy are two of the three commonly called pastoral epistles um, that Paul wrote. First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. They're grouped together like that because um, they're a little bit different than the other letters that Paul wrote. They are to individuals. They are um, for a little bit different purpose. They are to build them up and to instruct them. They are from an older 
uh, apostle to his younger protégés. And so First and Second Timothy fall into that category. And so what I want to do this morning is talk a little bit about Paul, talk a little bit about Timothy, talk a little bit about what's going on um, wherever Timothy is. We'll talk about that. And then kind of uh, dive into some themes that we want to watch for as we go through this series to keep our eyes uh, open, our ears attentive to what God has for us and really set the groundwork for where we're going to go um, in this book. When we were uh, in Israel in April, um, the very first morning, we were at um, a place called Yad Hashmonah in the Judean hills, about 10 miles uh, west of Jerusalem. And that's where um, Amy and I basically met and started dating. And we were able to visit with um, one of our professors from college. And one of the things that he talked to our group about that morning was how easy it is for us to forget that this is historical. This book is not um, fairy tales. It's not um, something that someone kind of threw together a few years ago. This is an ancient document, the best attested ancient document in history. And it is um, a record of actual history. So this is not a a story that we need to um, kind of try to find some moral in. Um, This is actual history. This is an actual letter from an apostle of Jesus Christ to a pastor of a church. And so there are so many things in these books for us. Some of the things in these books are going to be mainly for Pastor Ron and myself and the elders. And so you'll get to to peek in on that, maybe hold us accountable in a better way now that you've seen what Paul has to say about pastors and how they are to be. And then there's also a plenty um, in these books for us individually as we go out into the world and as we live life. So let's talk about Paul. The Apostle Paul first word in uh, First Timothy. Uh, that's how um, letters back then were started. You started with your own name, which is generally not how we start letters or emails or Facebook messages or whatever you do, texts. Um, but this is the, the common way of letters in the first century. And the Apostle Paul, of course, was formerly known as Saul. He, uh, according to Philippians 3, was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This is who Saul was before um, the Lord met him on the Damascus Road, changed the course of his life and sent him as the apostle to the Gentiles. And that's how we know Paul, but it is helpful for us to remember, and Paul won't let us forget in these letters, that he wasn't born an apostle. He, um, he grew up um, in the Jewish faith, and then became one of the fiercest persecutors of the Christian faith, um, directly after the church was, began, was begun in Jerusalem. We even know that, that Saul was on his way to Damascus in order to persecute the church, the new believers that called themselves the way. So this is who Saul was. And now as we near the end of the Apostle Paul's life, he has written this letter to Timothy. The date of this letter is probably 64 or 65 AD. And this becomes important historically. You'll see this if you have a study Bible. This will be mentioned for sure. Trying to figure out when exactly this was written. Um, there's a significant issue in dating both of these books, First and Second Timothy. Uh, scholars will argue about these um, all over the place, but what I do want to show you is one maybe um, 
helpful theory as to show us what's going on and to set the context for this book and 2 Timothy. So go to the end of Acts. Go to the end of the book of Acts. Go to chapter 28. The latter half of the book of Acts is taken up um, with the life of the Apostle Paul, his three recorded missionary journeys, his frequent beatings and stonings and imprisonments. So he preaches the gospel all over Asia Minor and into Europe. We see at the end of Acts 28 that he's finally made it to Rome. He has appealed to Caesar. Caesar at this time was Nero. And because Paul's a Roman citizen, he went through the proper legal channels and appealed his case all the way up to the very top. And that was to Nero. And so he's been sent as a prisoner to Rome. And we see that he's placed in a house uh, in Rome as he awaits his appeal process. Go to um, verse 23 of chapter 28. Paul's inviting the Jewish people and the Jewish leaders nearby to discuss the gospel. And he says, When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen." Praise the Lord for that, as most of us in this room are Gentiles. And then the book of Acts ends this way. Luke says, He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Full stop. What happened, Luke? <laughs> He's waiting for an appeal. What, what's going on? And the book, the book ends. And that's what we have from Acts. And the rest of the timeline we have to piece together from Paul's letter. So here's, here's our best guess. Church tradition and some historical documents seem to say uh, that Paul died around 67 AD, that he was beheaded um, by Nero, and so that it, it, he must have gone to court. His appeal was finally heard. However, we see in 2 Timothy especially that Paul is in prison and from how he writes, it does not look like he's under house arrest in a place where he's got, for two years, guests coming in and out. And so what we're going to surmise is that at the end of the book of Acts, Paul is in prison in Rome. And after the end, our hypothesis is that Paul is released. And there was a law passed in 61 AD. Paul arrived very close to that time in prison in Rome. And the law passed in 61 was trying to get rid of frivolous lawsuits. See, there's, this is, there's nothing new under the sun. This, this, and so we, we surmise that, that for some reason or another, perhaps related to that law, Paul is released from prison. Paul in Romans chapter 15 had expressed in a desire to go all the way west to Spain to, for their understanding to the end of the world to go share the gospel. And it seems also from church historians and tradition that Paul actually did make it there. 
And so what we're going to what we're going to say is the setting of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy come after the imprisonment at the end of Acts. After the imprisonment at the end of Acts that Paul has a renewed ministry and he continues to travel. And Pastor Ron and myself will will point that out at certain parts of 1 and 2 Timothy. But what we're going to say is that 1 Timothy is happening in between imprisonments and that 2 Timothy, his last letter, is happening as his death is imminent. And we'll see that from the wording in 2 Timothy. So all that to say, that kind of helps us see what we think is going on here in around A.D. 64 or 65. Well, who's he writing this letter to? Uh, Clearly, it's to Timothy. Um, The the letter is 1 Timothy. And if you'll look in verse 2 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, you see it's written to Timothy. Well, we need to go back and make sure we know who Timothy is. It's easy for us, especially who have grown up in the church, to kind of assume names and people and events and things that we learned in fourth grade and haven't updated since then. So it's helpful, I think, to review these things and to remind ourselves of who Timothy is. So we're going to do just a brief overview of Timothy's history with Paul. So I want you to turn to Acts chapter 16 with me. We'll do this rather quickly, just to kind of review who Timothy is and bring us up to the time of the writing of 1 Timothy. So who is Timothy? Who is Timothy? Acts chapter 16. You know what? Actually, I'm going to take us back to chapter 14 real quick. Take us back to chapter 14. This is Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey, which I've put on the screen. Maybe you can see that. It's the map of their first journey. And they make their way from the island of Cyprus up to Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And they go to several cities. And as you'll see in Acts 14, they go to Iconium. And then they come to a place called Lystra. And it's at Lystra. You may remember that the people there believe Paul and Barnabas to be the gods, or at least sent from the gods. There's a huge festival. The priests come out and want to sacrifice. And Paul and Barnabas tear their clothes and try to reason with these people to say, we're just men like you, and then proclaim the gospel to them. However, some Jewish people who did not like what Paul had to say had followed Paul and Barnabas from their previous cities and arrived at Lystra. And Paul is stoned outside of Lystra. In fact, they did such a good job, they thought he was dead. And they left him to die outside. The believers come and get him, and he goes back into the city and continues to preach the gospel, um, which is incredible perseverance. He continues to preach and then leaves that area and goes back to Antioch at the end of the first missionary journey. Acts chapter 16 is the second missionary journey which you'll see on the screen behind me as well. And on this second missionary journey, Paul retraces his steps. He goes back to these places where he's established churches, where he's established elders in those churches, and he returns to these cities. And so we come to Acts chapter 16. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Here we have the introduction to Timothy. We find out later on in the pastoral epistles in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy that his mother and his grandmother 
raised him in the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. He knew the Old Testament scriptures. However, his father was a Gentile. And so we come to find out that Timothy was never circumcised. And so when Paul calls him, uh, the first thing that he does after hearing from the disciples around that say, wow, Timothy's a great guy. He, he's, he's well spoken of. Um, Paul has Timothy circumcised in order to have credibility with the Jewish people that they're going to meet. Because Paul's practice was to show up in a city. And where did he go first? He went to a synagogue, the place of meeting for the Jewish people. And usually his practice was to go there to preach the gospel, to preach Jesus as Messiah, and then to also go and preach to the Gentiles that were in that city. So we're introduced to Timothy on the second missionary journey. He dives right in and goes along with Paul. And for the rest of the journey, um, he's with him, except for a few places where he gets sent out on some short-term mission trips. There's some guesses as to how old Timothy may have been. The guesses range from... Uh, teenager, 15, 16, to someone in his early 20s. So this is a young man who um, is accompanying Paul, which speaks well of him, that Paul would say, come with me, we're going to travel the world, share the gospel. I know I just got stoned and I've been beaten and I've had all these things happen to me, but come along with me. So this is who Timothy is. Timothy joins the crew. He goes along on the trip. We find out in 1 Thessalonians that Timothy was actually sent back to Thessalonica later on in the trip. So Paul and Silas and Timothy make it down to Athens. And Paul is so concerned about the believers at Thessalonica because Paul was kicked out prematurely that he actually sends Timothy on a mission trip back to Thessalonica to preach the gospel and to sustain the people and to continue to teach them God's word. So this is who Timothy is. He's a, he's a trusted co-worker with Paul. Um, later on, on the third missionary journey, uh, Paul sends Timothy along with a man named Erastus to visit the churches in Macedonia. Um, you can see Macedonia on the map up here. It's in the north. It's where Alexander the Great was from. Some cities in there were Thessalonica, Berea, and Philippi. So Timothy goes there. He was also sent to Corinth sometime around uh, this time. So he's actively being sent around by Paul. Uh, if we read the book of Philippians, it seems he's also sent to Philippi. So Timothy clearly is, if not the right-hand man, one of Paul's right-hand men, and is sent out on these trips. He is trusted. Also, six of the New Testament epistles that Paul wrote, Timothy is listed as a co-author. So 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and First and Second Thessalonians all say that they are from Paul and Timothy. So Timothy is intimately involved in Paul's work. In various places in the New Testament, Paul calls Timothy a fellow worker, a brother, a servant, a beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and his son. The last mention of Timothy, we find, is in the last chapter of the book of Hebrews. Of course, we don't know for sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, but at the end, in Hebrews 13.23, we're related the information that Timothy has just been released from prison. And so it seems that after um, Paul is imprisoned or perhaps after he's executed, that Timothy just continues on and can, Timothy himself is placed in prison. And we find out in Hebrews 13 that he is released. Um, there's different church traditions that say what happens to Timothy at the end of his life, but we don't know for sure. What we do know from the scriptures is that Timothy was Paul's right-hand man, a faithful brother, servant, co-worker, and missionary right along with the Apostle Paul. Well, what are the circumstances, next in your notes, that the letter is written for? Why write this letter? The scholars call um, all of Paul's epistles occasional. 
not meaning that he wrote them every once in a while, but they were written for a certain occasion. So what is the occasion? What is the circumstance that this letter is written? Well, First Timothy, Timothy is in Ephesus to deal with false teachers. And we see that at the beginning of the book. We'll take a look at that next week especially. But in First Timothy, Timothy is in Ephesus to deal with false teachers. Um, you, you'll remember uh, Pastor Ron talked about Ephesus in our series, The Seven. Here's a, a, a picture of what it may have looked like um, around the time that Timothy was there. It's a, a, a vast city, a port city, very important for trade. It was the fourth largest city in the empire. Um, it had a huge road. It had libraries, which means it was automatically a great city. It had a large theater. It had a temple to Artemis or Diana which was actually one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, just a massive um, temple. You'll see it on, in the back up on the hill. Um, it also had a large Jewish colony. So a lot of Jews were already settled in Ephesus when Paul came along and when Timothy was there. So Jewish culture was not foreign to the city. It was kind of an established minority in the city. So Timothy is in Ephesus to deal with false teachers. Who are these false teachers? Well, we, we don't know for sure. Um, it seems likely from some of the wording in First and Second Timothy that they may have even been elders of the church at Ephesus who had begun to stray and to teach a false gospel, to teach false doctrine. So Timothy is the trusted servant sent to Ephesus to deal with the false teaching. We actually don't even know exactly what the false teaching consists of, but there are some clues in the text. There seems to be like a strong Jewish element to it as the law comes up. We'll talk about that next week. There's uh, references to being a teacher of the law and what that entails. Um, there's also concerns with myths and genealogies. And that is uh, a, a very Jewish concern, something that came up in um, Jewish debates. Now, when you think genealogies, don't think those portions of the Bible that you skip over in your Bible reading, right? Because they just say, this guy begat, this guy begat, this guy blah, blah, blah. And there's all these names you can't pronounce. By the way, those are fantastic portions of Scripture. Don't skip over them. They're just as inspired as Jesus' sayings. Um, but when these people use genealogies, they're not just saying a list. What the Jewish people tended to do was to take a genealogy that may have been myth or tradition or may have been history kind of spiced up to sound a little better. And within the genealogy, they would place heroes. They would place stories that may or may not have been true or may, have, may or may not have been... Um, a little bit helped along. And so because of these genealogies, a lot of false teachers and Jewish traveling teachers would take from these genealogies and kind of make up their own theology, teach their own doctrine based on these things. So when we get to those portions, don't just think lists. Think a list that has stories contained within it that the Jewish teachers would use. Okay? Now, uh, also... Some of the teaching seems to be some kind of Greek thought, so distinctly not Jewish. So whatever this false teaching is, it's kind of this mash of different religions and different um, myths and mysticism. And so what we seem to see is some kind of um, asceticism, uh, meaning First uh, Timothy mentions that some of the false teachers were forbidding marriage. Don't get married because that will not help you on the path to holiness or the path to enlightenment or the path to God. They also named certain foods off limits. So this actually sounds very similar to what we, what we talked about when we preached the book of Colossians. There was a similar false teaching going on in Colossae. 
And so whatever is happening, there's this, this kind of mashup of different religions and things going on. And we don't exactly get to hear it because, again, the letter is from Paul to Timothy. Timothy knows what to teach. He spent his life with Paul. But we see little hints here and there about what he has to deal with. Also, 2 Timothy 2 seems to suggest that some of the false teachers were saying the resurrection had already happened. And so, oh, sorry, you missed out. That kind of throws a wrench in Christian theology if the resurrection's already happened. Um, And so that seems to also be an aspect of what's going on in the false teaching. Whatever the precise nature of the false teaching, Paul clearly, in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, calls it demonic. Um, He doesn't beat around the bush. This is not just someone's kind of whimsy, making things up when they're bored. This is demonic, and it comes from Satan trying to twist the truth. Um, I think that Satan is totally fine with people going to church. I think he loves people going to church because uh, Satan rarely blatantly contradicts God. Most of the time, Satan is a deceiver. He adds a word here or there. He twists the meaning of something. We see that even in the very first temptation of Eve. Did God really say? Planting seeds of doubt. And so this false teaching that Timothy has to deal with is demonic, which reminds us this is not merely a communication thing. This is not merely an efficiency thing. This is not merely communicating facts. It's not just intellectual. It is. But it is much deeper than that. There is a supernatural battle going on, which we know from Ephesians chapter 6. Paul says, put on the full armor of God. Our battle's not with flesh and blood. It's with principalities and powers. It's behind the scenes. So we have to remember this as we're going to talk about a lot of practical things in First and Second Timothy. How to order your church. What does an elder look like? What does a deacon look like? How do you go about doing these things? We have to be very careful that we don't just settle on the practical or the pragmatic, but that there is a supernatural battle going on. In fact, there's a supernatural battle going on in this room right now. I have no doubt that there are angels and perhaps demons in this room at this very moment working against each other, um, looking to the demons to divert your attention, to distract you, and the angels fighting back, and we must fight as well. Well, today we're going to cover the first two verses of 1 Timothy. So let's look at 1 Timothy 1, verses 1 and 2. This is a typical greeting of first century epistles. We've found lots of letters in the first century that look just like this or a variation on it. I'm going to read those two verses and then we'll just briefly talk about them. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. If you were to do a survey of all of Paul's letters, this falls into just about every other letter's form. There are some tweaks here and there, and Paul makes things a little bit personal or a little bit more specific depending on the church, depending on the letter. But for the most part, this is very similar to his other letters. He identifies himself First, Paul. He identifies himself as an apostle. And again, it's one of those Christianese words that we can use again and again and again and forget what it means. Uh, So the word apostle in Greek at the time was just another word for messenger. Um, You were an apostle if I sent you to go take a message to somebody else. Um, So it, it specifically means he's a sent one, a messenger. 
an apostle of Christ Jesus or Christ Jesus's apostle. But it also began to take on a technical term, as we know, on the 12 apostles. And then uh, as we look in the 1 Corinthians 15, uh, most likely James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul is also called an apostle. He is called specifically in a different way than you and I. Um, Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus, telling him what his life will be like, radically changing that. Um, An apostle, in the big A sense of the word, was someone who had apostolic authority delegated from Jesus to those that he wanted to initially spread the gospel and start the churches. Paul is also saying that the basis for his apostleship is not saying one morning, I'd like to be an apostle. I think that sounds like a good vocation. I'm going to go major in apostling. That didn't happen. The apostleship of Paul notice in verse 1, is based on the command of God. Now, most of the time, if Paul's going to appeal to authority, he says, by the will of God. And there's a little bit of a distinction here because he says, by the command of God. This is an imperative from God that Paul will be, is to be, an apostle of Christ Jesus. So Paul is asserting his authority. And this begins to show us the possibility that although this is a letter to Timothy, that I think likely this letter was meant to also be read in public. So although it is personally sent to Timothy, it's not sent to the church at Ephesus. I want you to turn in your Bible to the end of 1 Timothy. So just turn a page or two over. Look at verse 21. Chapter 6, verse 21. If you have an ESV, you will have a note. At the end, a little number one that will point you to the bottom of the page. But Paul ends the letter, the way he ends lots of letters, grace be with you. And we don't have an easy way to do this in English unless you're from the south. This says grace be with y'all. It's plural. That you is not just you, Timothy. It's you, all those who are hearing this. And so there's a good indication that although it's meant for Timothy, it's also meant for the church that Timothy is going to, in one sense, pastor and so paul is asserting his authority and saying i'm an apostle because god commanded it he is asserting that very fact and then it's interesting to note that he refers to god as savior the new testament generally we think of jesus being called the savior but in this place god is called savior and that was very common in the old testament for god to be known as the savior we think especially of the exodus from egypt Um, The children of Israel recognized God as their savior because he saved them out of slavery. He mentions God as savior. And this very well might be a swipe at Emperor Nero because Nero had the title savior as well. So perhaps it's a little swipe that we would not find too uncharacteristic of Paul. um, As he says, God is the savior, not you, Mr. Emperor. So he says, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, and it's interesting, he says, our hope. Our hope. In Paul's thought, hope is always this this future-oriented, eschatological event that's going to happen. It's a future-oriented salvation. And so in Paul, yes, you have been saved in the past, and yes, you are continuing to be saved in the present, and in the future, we will ultimately be saved when we get our new bodies. You see that in Romans 8, that the the thing that we are waiting for is resurrection. This flesh ain't going to cut it. We need a new body. 
And so Paul's hope is forward-looking in Titus 2.13. It's called famously the blessed hope, Jesus' return, um, his, his return for his people. So it's wrapped up in this idea of resurrection and receiving new bodies that are not doomed to decay. Uh, one commentator, commentator said that this hope is the determined expectation grounded in the certainty of God's past faithfulness that God will save his people and in other ways come to their aid, that Christ will return to complete our salvation, that eternal life awaits. So that Christ is our hope. He's our hope for the future, which informs our hope for the present. That as we look ahead to the future, we know that if that future is secured, that as Romans 8 says, what can separate us from the love of Christ in the here and the now? Nothing is the answer. Well, as it's written, we see that Timothy is called a certain title here that is intimate and dear. Verse 2, Paul says to Timothy, my true child, or if you have the NIV, son in the faith. My true child. The term for true here is a little bit different word than is normally used, and it indicates something that is genuine or legitimate. Um, as Chuck Swindoll pointed out, when paired with child, it distinguished to the Roman world who was a natural-born heir from who was an adoptee. So Timothy is dear to Paul, and he's the son that Paul never had. Um, he considers him thus, and he says it in Second Timothy as well, his true child, his child in the faith. This shows the intimacy between Paul and Timothy. Paul loves Timothy like a son. It's also helpful to note that, again, the church at Ephesus is probably hearing this, probably hearing this, and they would not fail to see that the Apostle Paul, who spent about three years at the church at Ephesus, is calling Timothy his true child. No doubt this would do two things. Not only would it encourage Timothy to hear this from his mentor, from his father in the faith, but I think it would go a long way in towards legitimizing Timothy's ministry in Ephesus by Paul saying, he is my true child. Implicitly saying, he inherits my message. Listen to him. And so I think that this is encouraging to Timothy and also a good, um, a good way of telling the Ephesian church, listen to Timothy, he has my delegated authority. Paul ends the greeting by saying grace, mercy, and peace. Normally, we hear grace and peace. That's very common in Paul, but here he adds mercy. Very interesting. Uh, mercy was often used to translate the Hebrew word chesed, which is steadfast love or loving kindness. Um, sometimes it's called mercy in the Old Testament. It speaks of Yahweh's covenant faithfulness to his people. And so Yahweh said to the Israelites, I will be your God, you will be my people. And he related to the children of Israel in a way that he did not relate to the peoples around Israel. And so perhaps what's going on here is that Paul is reminding and blessing um, Timothy with grace, which we are familiar with, mercy, which speaks of covenant loyalty and faithfulness, loving kindness, and also his peace, his shalom, which is more than just the absence of conflict it's more of an all-encompassing peace it's a holistic thing and it talks about restoration so grace mercy and peace from whom god the father and christ jesus our lord again lord is a term we're so used to how many of you think for a second how you normally pray how many of you say something like dear lord that's how you open okay good several of you do that um some of us have names that we we call some of us call god 
God most of the time. Sometimes we call him Father. Some of you call him Lord. It's, it's good to remember that Lord is not like a, a nice little term at the end of Jesus' name. It means master. It means one who has slaves. And so Jesus is Lord. He is master. And this is who um, Paul says grace, mercy, and peace are coming from. And man, is Timothy going to need some grace, mercy, and peace as we're going to see as we investigate these two books. Well, uh, Pastor Ron has entitled the sermon series, Entrusted. Oh, I should go back to that. Entrusted, his purpose, our focus. So I want to briefly talk about entrusted, what that means. That word comes up several times in First and Second Timothy. As you read through, you'll see it um, very early, twice in chapter 1 of First Timothy. Um, But what he has been entrusted with, namely, is the gospel, the message. Timothy has been entrusted with the gospel and the message. Three times he is commanded to guard what has been entrusted to him. So he's been given something, and he's to guard it, to watch over it, to keep it, to take care of it. He's also told that he's been entrusted with Paul's message, and he is further to entrust it to faithful men who will entrust it to faithful men who will entrust it to faithful men 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 and then now we're here in the year 2013 and the message still is entrusted to us and we are called in discipleship to entrust it to others the gospel what is it the good news what is the good news we, we so often lose track of what the gospel is because we're so used to the word let me remind you of the gospel it means good news It means that there has been a rescue operation for the souls of sinful men and women who have been separated by their creator God because of their willing rebellion against him. God is holy. He must punish sin. And yet in his very great mercy, he has sent his only son into this world. Jesus is that son and he put on human flesh. He was subjected to weakness and temptation yet without sin. He kept the law, living a perfect life of obedience to his father that we could not live though we tried. He willingly went to a bloody, grotesque cross where we should have died. He was there in our place for our sin, absorbing all the wrath of God towards sin and rebellion. That is very good news. But it gets better because three days later he rose from the dead. He conquered Satan, sin, and death. He confirmed forgiveness of sins and eternal life for any and all who will repent of their sin and place their trust in Jesus' work, not ours, Jesus' work for us. Those of us in this room who have received Christ Jesus have been given the right to be called sons of God. And we have hope not only in the future where we will see God the Father face to face, but we also have hope in this present world where we are tasked and trusted to tell this good news to those around us who are dying and on their way to eternal punishment in hell if they do not turn from their sins. That is the good news that we have. There is hope. There is a rescue. It has been accomplished. And now it's on you. Will you repent of your sin? Will you respond to Jesus' work? Place your faith in what he has done. Receive the Holy Spirit. Receive forgiveness of sins and walk in newness of life empowered to live in this world for Jesus. That's our message. That's what we're here for. That's why you're still on this planet. Paul preached this message and it's what he got his head hacked off for. 
There are, today there are thousands upon thousands of our brothers and sisters in places like Nigeria and Iran who are being killed, tortured, persecuted, having their businesses taken away, separated from their families for this very message. And so this glorious theme is one of six that we'll close today with that we want to be watching for in this series. Six themes that we want to watch for. Are there others? Of course there are. But these are six that um, we have picked out to keep our eyes on as we go through the books of First and Second Timothy. So, number one, the centrality of the gospel to everything that we do. The centrality of the gospel to everything that we do. I'm not going to read all of these passages that are laid out there in the notes for you, but I would encourage you to go home and do, this, do that as you prepare for this series. Again, preaching is not um, a one-sided event. Um, this is an activity that we participate in. The Spirit of God is relaying His message. So will you listen and will you respond to that? Or will you merely spectate? I'd encourage you to get involved. In 2 Timothy 1, um, Paul does talk about how the gospel um, changes how we live. That the gospel is not merely fire insurance. Uh, that it calls us to live a life of endurance. That we live holy lives in opposition to the world around us. Number two, stay on course towards godliness and do God's work. Stay on course toward godliness and do God's work. In the last chapter of 1 Timothy, Paul says this, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Notice the verbs there. Pursue, take hold. They're active verbs. This is something that, that Timothy is to go and to do. So we want to, to notice that. We also notice that he's to stay on course and not to swerve off course like his opponents, the false teachers, have. Number three, watch for the theme of declaring and defending sound doctrine. Declare and defend sound doctrine. This comes up time and time again. But Timothy is to declare the truth and to defend the truth. And we're called to do the same thing in our lives as well. And truth in these letters is central. Mentioned 11 times. Truth. What is it? In this world, do we know? Can we communicate that to those around us? We need to be able to declare and defend sound doctrine. Number four is discipleship. We've been camping out on this for the last year and a half. It is our, our theme for the year. Living on purpose for His purpose. Discipleship is Second Timothy 2.2. 2. He said, you've been entrusted with a message, Timothy, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's what we want to do. That's what we want to do. And we see that popping up in this church as some older, take the younger under their wings and go through a book of the Bible or go through Bible reading or meet and pray or go through um, a book that helps us see the truths of God's word. Get involved in discipleship. You folks that have been um, saved for a long time, it's not time to cruise. It's time to help the younger ones live in the pattern of life that you have established or that you have learned from. So grab someone. Take them under your wing. Teach them. Carry them along with you. Show them your faults and your, the ways that you failed. Show them your victories and how you have progressed in godliness. Discipleship is key. Number five, how a church body should operate and behave. How a church body should operate and behave. This is from 1 Timothy 3. 14 and 15, because Paul hopes to come to Timothy, but he says, if I don't make it, 
I want you to know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, this verse has been used to tell kids to shape up when they're in church. This is not just a verse for kids. This is a verse for God's kids in God's house, which is not this building. It's this, pe- this people, this church. This building burns down tonight. Village Bible Church does not disappear. We are Village Bible Church. And lastly, number six, watch for the theme of character and leadership. This is most notably seen in the qualifications for elder and for deacon in First Timothy chapter 3. So be on the lookout for those things. Well, as we go through this sermon series for the next, who knows, six months, something like that, we're going to see all kinds of um, great topics we're going to get into. Um, pastoral ministry, of course, is mentioned. The role of women in the church. Money and wealth. Praying for leaders. How to relate to different age ranges in the church. How to help widows in the congregation. How to pay your pastors. How to rightly rebuke your pastors. What it means to suffer as a follower of Jesus and the inspiration, infallibility, and inerrancy of God's Word. All those and more are going to be covered in this series. So I I pray that as we get into this, that you would prepare your heart to be pierced and challenged and convicted and and prepared to be entrusted with a message that you need to pass on to others. Let's pray that Jesus would build this church and that he would do it in this season through First and Second Timothy. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this people. Thank you that we don't have to build this church. That your son Jesus Christ is building the church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against us. We have nothing to fear. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We have been empowered by your Holy Spirit to live lives that say no to ungodliness. Say yes to living a holy life, to following after you, to following the steps of Jesus, empowered by the same Spirit that empowered Jesus to live His life. Jesus, we we pray that, that these books would help us to know You better and to magnify You, that we would tell the world about You, that we would know for certain, that we would be assured of our love for You and Your love for us. And God, speak to us in these books. Help us as we study that we would see new things that we've never seen before and that you would challenge us as we live lives in this world, that we would disciple those around us, that we would share the gospel with those who are dying and desperately in need of rescue. Thank you for this morning. Be with us as we go to some further time of fellowship and learning. And God, we pray that as we go from this place and scatter this week, that we would live lives worthy of the gospel that we've been called to. In Jesus' name, amen.